I have a quick confession for you today. One of the things that I hate most is getting stuck at every single red light in town. Somehow, I always get stuck at that light on 2nd and Chestnut, you know, right down by Orion, and it takes forever. And even though, though it's a one-way going uh, east, there's no cars, and I'm always stuck there for like five minutes. Uh, you know, I'm sitting there in my car, I've got places to be, I've got people to see, I've got things to do, and I'm stuck at every single red light. But honestly, I probably suffer at those lights because of my own mismanagement of time and just running out, and so I'm reaping the consequences. But this idea of suffering isn't just uh, sticking to or is, isn't just unique to sitting at lights, but it kind of seems to be something that is, is human. I don't know if you've heard the saying, to be human is to suffer. It kind of seems every single person in some way or in some capacity suffers right? No matter where we go, no matter who we talk to, there are personal and public ways that everyone seems to suffer. Some suffer because of unforeseen circumstances coming up in their lives, where there's a loss of wealth, loss of income, and there is a, there's a, 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 a loss of just being able to pay bills or rent. We also suffer because we decline in our health, and we are no longer able to accomplish basic tasks that we once did, or we receive that terminal uh, that, or uh, the diagnosis from our doctor. But we also suffer because we lose loved ones, whether they pass away or whether their minds deteriorate to the point where they are no longer the people that we remember. In all of these cases of suffering, they always seem to penetrate where we find significance and security. These are also areas where we find identity and value. When suffering comes, our tendency is to blame God for the unfortunate state of our events. And many rightly believe that nothing in this world happens outside of his direction and sovereignty. As I was wrestling in my own life with God's sovereignty, I was in high school, and I remember one night I was looking out into the stars, and I was angry, I was confused, and I was complaining because of where God wasn't in my life. You see, leading up to that night, my dad had made several poor decisions for my family, where we ultimately ended up becoming homeless, and we lived in tents in the Ellensburg Canyon outside or just right outside of the Yakima River. And I'm sitting in the summer evening, looking in the stars, and I'm blaming God for his lack of provision, for his uh, lack of care for my family, and that he wasn't providing the housing and the security that I thought he should have. I think looking back at this, God wasn't living up to the standard that I had put on him, and I was asking the question, why am I suffering? Up to that point, I believed that because I was a good Christian, uh, I should be immune from suffering, and I assumed that only God did good things for good people. And in that moment, God failed me, and I felt God had abandoned me I felt that he had left our family in the middle of suffering to figure life out. 
And as I reflect back on this about my own life, I think it's common for many people here today where we've experienced our own suffering, and we often ask the question, why am I suffering? Or even ask the question, has God abandoned me? Our sermon series has been examining every story, every character, every event, and every command in the Bible, and how they are part of a bigger story about Jesus, about what he's done on the cross. We started at creation, where God created and God declared everything perfect. And then we talked about sin entering the world and how the perfect creation was forever marred and forever distorted. Then we looked at Noah's Ark and focusing on how there's a better salvation coming through Jesus. And then last week, Pastor Kevin talked about the Tower of Babel and how men are constantly looking for significance and security apart from Christ. Today, we're looking at the story of Job, which deals with suffering. But more than suffering, it focuses on God's sovereignty, on God's purposes, on God's power, and on God's presence amidst our suffering. As we look at the book of Job, the book of Job is not about Job, but the book of Job is a story about God. Through the course of the last several thousand years, Job has been an encouragement to many different people specifically Christians who are suffering and are confused what is happening in their lives. As you read the book of Job, it is an invitation for us to come into God to, um, to trust him and to worship him with, regardless of what we're facing. It is a book that is long. It is a complicated book. And which is why God has given us 42 chapters, and I'm only touching on one and a half today. Uh, But I would encourage you to take time over the course of the next two or three weeks to just read Job, to read how God interacts with man, to read about how we have faulty assumptions about God, about suffering, but we also have a special look into creation that we don't have in any other book of the Bible. And so our focus today is only on the bookends of Job, the beginning and the end, which means our time in Job today is going to be short. So we have to start where every good story starts, in the beginning. As we look at Job, the first five verses is setting the stage, telling us who Job is and that he is a righteous and a faithful man. Verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The author tells us exactly what type of man this is. He is a moral, righteous man with a deep faith in God. The important facts about the character is that he's a man of integrity. Job is the same person in private as he is in public. But not only is he a man of deep faith, he's a man who's had 10 kids. And he's a man that has deep pockets. Uh, We can look at the next couple of verses here. Uh, He is... He possesses more wealth than Elon Musk, and he could probably buy Twitter seven times over. But not only that, he's a man who's deeply respected in the entire region. As the text goes on, it tells us that Job is the type of person who prays for and with his kids every morning, where he creates habits for his kids to desire to know God, to love God. 
And he is a man who is faithfully pointing back to the goodness and the glory of God in everything that he does. Job's righteousness comes from faith in God alone. Now that we know a little bit about Job, we come to our first lesson in the book of Job, and that God has a purpose for your suffering. Verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. This is a very unique picture in the throne room of God, and as the reader, we are invited to see the interworkings of God's governance in his throne room. We see that here in chapter 1, and then we're going to get another glimpse in chapter 2. But what's happening in God's throne room is going to set the stage for the next 40 chapters of the book. And then God says in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God reiterates what we've already been told from verse 1, that Job is a righteous man. God knows Job. God loves Job deeply. But he also does something here. He points out Job to Satan. He, uh, God's comment about Job draws Satan's attention like a metal rod in the middle of a lightning storm, leading Satan to say in verse 9, Does Job fear God for no reason? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. This is what Satan's argument is, basically. Job is not actually good. Job's not actually righteous. He doesn't love you. He only loves your stuff. He only loves the things that you give him. And so he's saying that Job has bought into the prosperity gospel where if you give good things to God, then you get good things back. And so Satan is saying the only way to find what's truly inside Job is to inflict pain and suffering on him. He says if you remove your hand of blessing, he is going to curse and he's going to reject you. Without hesitation, God says in verse 12, Behold, all that he has in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And so what we see here is that God grants Satan the ability to test Job's faith, allowing Job to suffer. One of the things that we didn't look at in this verse is the fact that Job wants to destroy, or Satan wants to destroy Job. Yet God is not letting that happen. And so after he's given permission to, uh, to bring suffering to Job, he, he departs from his presence. And then we look at verse 13. And this, again, sets the stage for what is focusing back on Job. He's at home with his wife. Kids are spending time with the oldest brothers in their home. And in the span of the next two minutes, he's going to get the worst news of his life from four different messengers. Verse 14, the first message is carrying the news that thugs are stealing the donkeys and the oxen. Before he has a chance to deal with that, a second messenger comes, and they're carrying the fact that a freak lightning storm killed all 7,000 sheep. Before he has any time to process that, a third messenger comes carrying news that Pirates stole all 3,000 camels, killing all of their servants. Without any time to process, 
any of that devastating news, he gets a fourth message. Verse 19, And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. In a moment, Job loses everything. He loses his wealth. He loses his 401k. He loses his ability to provide for his family. But most importantly, he loses his family. There is nothing that Job could have done differently in this scenario. There, it was all taken from him by Satan. And then his suffering's not over yet. We see in chapter 2 that this same scenario happens again in the throne room. Satan is permitted again to attack Job's health. Verse, or 2 verse 7, Satan caused Job to lose his health. And in this short span of time for Job, he went from being one of the wealthiest people alive to having nothing. He went from having 10 kids to all of them taken from him. He went from having impeccable health to now being covered in painful boils. And so we look at the suffering of Job, and he suffered greatly because he lost a lot. He lost greatly. But through all of this purpose, or through all of this, we see that God had a purpose for Job's suffering. Satan's desire, Satan's purpose was to destroy and annihilate Job because of his righteousness, because of his faith in God. But God used this suffering as a purpose to bring Job deeper into a relationship with him in showing Job's authentic faith. This is what we see with Job's faith throughout the book. You know, it's kind of sometimes when we hit, enter a period of suffering, we have people come out of the woodworks and they give us trite responses amidst our suffering. Things like, well, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. Or they'll say things like, you know, time will just heal all things. And those are statements that are meant to comfort, but they, they, they do little to ease our current suffering. And what I will say is that whatever we're facing, no matter how hard life is for you right now, God has a purpose for your suffering. That purpose may be to draw you closer into faith. That purpose may be to humble you. That purpose may be to cleanse you from sin. I don't know what that purpose is, but God does. As we look at the first two chapters of Job, Job didn't know the purpose. Job didn't know what was going on in the throne room. All he knew is that he woke up one day and everything was great and it was the worst day of his life. Job didn't have the scene where he saw Satan and God interacting. Job was blind about the interactions of God just like we are in our suffering. But through this whole book, God is going to be inviting Job in to trust him with his suffering. In light of everything that has happened, look how Job responds in chapter 1 again. Then Job arose and tore his robe 
and shaved his, fed, shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the face of incomprehensible and immeasurable suffering, Job never lost his faith in God. Job never gave up on who God was. He doesn't comfort himself with Christian platitudes like, well, God just gave, you know, God wouldn't give me more than I could handle. The very fact that we're looking at Job's life, that, that is beyond ability of us being able to handle that on our own. He's brought to complete devastation and destruction, but he laments and he worships God. And for us, I think that no matter what we're facing, that we can worship God through the midst of our suffering. Chapter 2 ends with Job's friends coming to comfort him. And for seven days, they sit in silence as Job is wrestling with his pain and confusion. And so over the course of chapters 3 through 37, Job and his friends enter into heated arguments about God's justice, about God's rule, about God's control over creation. But all of these arguments are stemmed from these three questions, and these three questions are questions that we ask ourselves in our own suffering. The first question is, is why is this happening to me? And the second question is, has God abandoned me? And then the third question is, is am I being punished? As Job wrestles with these questions for 36 chapters, him and his friends have heated arguments and heated debates. And what happens when you have a lot of words spoken is a lot of words are spoken in ignorance. And we see throughout these chapters that a lot of words are spoken in ignorance, but not necessarily sinfulness. They're spoken in ignorance against God's character, against God's nature, about how God works in the world. And it leads to God's interruption in chapter 38. And so God begins by asking in verse 2, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. And so, without giving Job any time to answer, God peppers Job with a series of 77 questions over the course of four chapters. He is asking question after question after question, but he asks this question of Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And so through these questions, God is, you, we would think that God is answering those questions like, oh yeah, Job, uh, Satan and I had a, were talking about you and I believe that you have the faith to endure suffering and Satan wants to destroy you. No, he doesn't address any of Job's questions throughout the book. And instead of addressing Job and talking to Job about his suffering, he instead talks and questions him about creation. For many of us, we're just like, I need to know why I'm suffering. I don't want to know about creation. Yet through these questions, God is inviting Job to see God's immense power and the intricacies of creation. As you look at all 77 questions, they are basically illustrating that God 
stands over creation. He is sustaining the world. He is staining, sustaining creation and the galaxies that everything that has been created, he is, he is sustaining by the power of his word alone. As you read through the, the questions, it's easy to misread God's tone through all of this. The casual reader may infer that God is irritated with Job, that God is putting Job in his place, and to some degree that's right, but a proper reading of the text shows that God is being gracious in inviting Job to see what God does beyond our own lives. And so God is pulling back the curtains for Job specifically to show him many of the ways that he sustains creation. And through this, he's inviting Job to trust in his power and in his sovereignty. Starting in the creation account, God points to the created world. That everything that God says and everything that God does is by his power and his might alone. And through these questions and statements, we come to our second lesson of the book of Job, that God has power over all creation. All creation from the beginning until now points to the power and the authority that God possesses, that nothing happens in this world without God's knowledge, without God's power, without God's uh, 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 wisdom. Just even as we look at creation, there is a regularity that we can depend on. The seasons change, the sun rises, the sun sets, there are laws of physics that govern how our world operates. We can look at the world and see order. We can see God sustaining that by his power. And everything in the world bears testimony to God's great power. And so if God is, God is questioning Job and saying, if I have ordered all of creation on my own, what do you think I'm doing in your life? He's wanting Job to recognize that God is intimately involved in creation, but he is especially involved in the affairs of humanity. And through the, all of these questions, God teaches Job and us that he is God and we are not. Yet through this, God demonstrates to Job that he provides his power to us amidst our suffering. So not only does he provide his power, but he provides something else himself. We skipped over something a little bit important in the text. I want to look back at 38.1, and it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said. When God starts talking to Job, he's speaking to him directly. In fact, we find in other Old Testament passages where God speaks to man, but in almost all of those cases, God appears and speaks. Here, the author is wanting us to see that God was present from start to finish. God is speaking from the whirlwind. God is not appearing. God has been present. The implication for us is that Job, or God has been present with Job from Job 1 until now. He has been actively listening between the, uh, the arguments between Job and his friends, and now he is making his presence known, and he's speaking to Job, to Job directly, which leads us to our third lesson in the book of Job, that God is present 
and our suffering. See, God is present with Job in the good times of his life. God is present with Job in the hard times of life, and that he, is, he provided an abundance of wealth, health, and family in the good times. But he was also present with Job when Satan attacked him, and he was present with Job every step of the way, actively listening and watching every word that was discussed. God is telling Job that he has been right beside him every step of the way, yet Job has been oblivious to this. As we look at Job's problem throughout this book, it's not that he lamented. It was good and right for him, and it's good and right for us to lament in our suffering. But Job's problem was that he lamented to his friends and not to God who was listening. And I know that it is hard to see God, to feel God amidst our suffering, but we have to trust that he's present. In fact, God promises us, not just Job, but he promises us throughout the whole Bible that he is present with us and that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. This is one of the greatest promises through Scripture, and it is a promise that he gives to his, uh, his unending presence to his children. We first see this happen in Genesis 28, 15, where it says, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, for I will not leave you. And then Deuteronomy 31, he picks up that same promise, and he promises it now to the people of Israel. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. It is repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. And it is repeated in the New Testament for us as believers in Hebrews 13. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper I will not fear what man or what can man do to me. And this promise of his presence is one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. That the God of the universe who is created by his power alone is with you in your suffering. He is with you even when everyone in your life abandons you. He is with you when you are alone. And he comforts you with his presence. He comforts you uh, with his strength and in giving you his strength. And then he uses our suffering to bring him closer to him. I think that just speaks again to his infinite power that he can take something that has been horrible to us and he can turn it and he can make it good. Not that the suffering is good, but the result of it is suffering or the, the result of it is good. And so knowing that God is present in our suffering gives us the ability that we can find comfort and strength and confidence, not in our power, but God dwelling in me. But something even bigger is happening here in the book of Job, which leads us to our fourth lesson today. Job's suffering points to the ultimate suffering on the cross. As you read the book of Job, there's not one single verse or a series of verses that point us to, the, to, to Christ. It is the whole story. It is the beginning to the end that leads us to understand what the suffering is, is in the cross. As we look at the book of Job, Job is the shadow of a reality of a man that was not only blameless, but sinless. 
a man who was greater than just merely human, a man who emptied himself of all glory, taking on human flesh and descending all the way down to earth to take a degrading and shameful death on the cross, whose journey caused suffering far worse than Job's, causing him to die on the cross alone. As we look at Job, the story of Job is a shadow of a greater story in Jesus. And as we look at the life of Jesus, because Jesus suffered and overcame sin and overcame suffering, we know that our suffering has an expiration date. Whether it is in this life or the next, the suffering that we are experiencing in this life because of Christ will be overcome. This doesn't mean that we just simply knuckle down and we just endure our suffering, waiting for things to get better. We have to go to the one who overcame suffering, and that is Christ. Christ has overcome the grave. Christ has overcome suffering. We have hope. When we place our faith in him, that we will find relief for our lives, relief from suffering, whether that is in this life or in heaven, we know suffering will be vanquished. And this is the promise that we have in Christ when we have placed our faith in Jesus, when we come to know him, when we come to love him, that we are also redeemed and saved from all of our sins, but we also have hope that God will deliver us from our suffering. And because of Christ, we know that our suffering is temporary, but the glory that we will experience is forever. The Apostle Paul tells us uh, this, that our current suffering pales into the coming glory in Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then verse 28, And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God redeems our suffering. Our suffering results in us having deeper trust, deeper faith, deeper love in Christ. And so the suffering that Jesus endured was taking sin upon humanity, or taking the sin of humanity upon himself bearing the judgment for our sin, redeeming us from our sins. And as we look at Jesus' purpose in his suffering, it's that we don't suffer forever, but that we get to enjoy relationship with him. He was beaten on, or he, was, he has beaten sin on the cross, and he is victorious for sin. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that we can overcome the sin, or overcome sin and suffering by his power, we have the same, we have, have the same freedom from sin and suffering when we place our faith in Jesus. Which brings us to our point of the message today: is that God is present with us, redeeming our suffering with purpose and power through the cross of Jesus. We are to entrust our suffering and our pain to Him, Jesus, who bore all suffering on the cross, where we know with complete certainty that that our suffering is temporary, and yet it pales to the coming glory. All we have to do 
to, to receive this is to draw near to him in faith. The scripture tells us that when we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. As we look at these four lessons of Job, that God has a purpose for our suffering, that God has power over our suffering, and that God is present with our suffering, and that all of our suffering leads us to a better understanding of who Christ is, what do we do with that? I got three takeaways for you from the book of Job. The first one is that we can worship God in our suffering. Job didn't lose his faith when suffering hit his life. He worshiped God and lamented over his loss in chapter 1. And so he worshiped to God, crying out to him, singing to him, declaring the truth and the character of who he is. So for us, we worship God resting in the fact that no suffering happens outside of God's direction and outside of God's purpose. So what are we supposed to say when we don't have words in our suffering? This is why I love, one of the reasons why I love the Psalms. The Psalms is, is uh, just the next book over from Job, but it's been called the prayer book of the church, meaning that the, the Psalms have been written by many places that we find ourselves in every day. And they are re- they're real people writing with real emotions, expressing all kinds of emotions to God. And if you are here this morning and you are suffering and you don't know how to worship, I want to point you to just five psalms of lament. That's Psalm 10, Psalm 13, Psalm 38, Psalm 88, and Psalm 130. If you are suffering and you have no words to worship with, open these psalms. Let these be your prayer. When we look at worshiping, worship seems to be counterintuitive to what we are supposed to do when we're suffering. We often want to complain. We often want to be angry. We want to sit in our pain. But when we do that, we miss out on the primary way that God draws near to himself. Throughout the Psalms, throughout the whole Bible, we see that God draws near to the brokenhearted. When we draw near to God and worship, we are able to pray rejoicing of who he is. The second thing that I that we have this morning is that we cannot suffer alone. Job's friends came to comfort and console him. And this was speaking to the fact that God has a desire for us to be in community with each other. We cannot suffer alone. We need people around us. In fact, one of the values that we have here at Restoration Church is that we belong together. That your suffering is my suffering, my suffering is your suffering. It's not just in the context of suffering, but it is also in the context of joy. Your joy is my joy. My joy is your joy. We share in those things in relationship. And one of the things that our elders are constantly doing is we are creating intentional ways where people can connect and engage with each other beyond Sunday morning. We want people to be in relationship together, bearing each other's burdens, praying for one another, comforting each other, because it's in relationship that we don't suffer alone. We can comfort one another regardless of what we're facing. And we are able to, to pray for one another. And the last takeaway we have, I have for you today is that we can trust God is working even when we don't see him. Thinking back to my own life, Almost 20 years ago, 
I don't know why my dad made the poor decisions for my family. I don't know why my family was homeless and destitute. I don't know why my family is currently broken and divided. I don't know why bitterness has set in the place where love should be. But what I do know is that God has been actively working in my life 20 years ago up until now and even before 20 years ago. What I see through my story is that God didn't provide the things that I was expecting. God provided the things that I needed. Over the course of the years, I've learned more and more how God was working in the midst of my suffering in ways that I could not have understood in the time. I may never know why my family was homeless. I may never know why we experienced that. But what I do know is that God has been working, working on me, through me, and has been growing my faith in him. For us, in the midst of our suffering, it's hard for us to clearly see all the ways that God is moving. But we have to be confident that God is working in our lives. And we are confident because Jesus is over, or Jesus has overcome suffering through the cross. And that God is working and moving in our lives in profound ways. And it's only when we trust him that we can patiently wait and endure for the full redemption that is coming from suffering. And the trusting comes from seeking him and submitting to him even when we don't have all of the answers. I know that this is true for me and I believe that this is true for you. That you can trust in the purpose and the power and the presence of God regardless of what is going on in your life. The book of Job doesn't seek to answer why suffering happens. The book of Job invites us to worship and to trust him with our suffering. Will you pray with me?